Hello and welcome to Voyager, A Theological Journey. I'm Captain Rainway and this is my unruly crew. I'm Will Nicholas. And I'm Lindsay Cullen. Marching meta-narrative is that they're going as fast and as hard as they can, you know, back towards Federation space. No, they're not. They're poking their nose into everything. And that really annoys me, I have to say see and hear all of our quirks and foibles as we work together as a team. Welcome to Voyager, A Theological Journey. Today on this episode called Meld, which is episode 16 of season two, Tuvok investigates the murder of a Voyager engineer, former Marquis and Betazoid Lon Suter confesses to the murder and offers no explanation or sign of remorse. Tuvok finds curious the reason for Suda's madness and performs a mind meld on the killer, only to find himself losing his usual Vulcan control and regressing into madness. This is one of those episodes where the the real focus isn't on science fiction tropes, but it's absolutely, uh, you know, on psychology and what's going on in uh, different people in the crew. And, and I think also a, a wonderful example of acting with uh, Brad Dourif, who plays the uh, the main character, Lon Suter, in this episode. I, I really enjoyed the, the sort of psychological twists and turns of this episode. Yes, I agree, Lindsay. I found it quite absorbing. And in some episodes, I'm sitting there thinking, this is 10 minutes I'm never going to get back of my life. Um, I did not find this with this episode. It, it really did keep the suspense up and wanted me, uh, I wanted to keep watching it. So that was, I thought, well done. The acting was good and the whole drama was good. This is one of the um, things about science fiction is that a narrative that exists anywhere else in in any other trope can find itself right in the middle uh, of a story on board a spaceship traveling far from home trying to get back to where it came from that that uh, that, that there's a human condition and I shouldn't say human because uh, Lon Suter is a betazoid but there is this this condition of, of existence. Um, that has to be in the centre or heart of any good science fiction. And and it is interesting because I found myself, you know, I, I knew from the start that uh, um, Lon Suter is a Betazoid, and yet particularly in the interactions with uh, Tuvok, I found myself thinking of him as a human and sort of in my head arguing with Tuvok when he says, well, there must be some rational explanation, there must be some motivation. And I'm thinking, well, no, but humans actually don't always have that. Sometimes it's it's just th- that primal, you know, violence that, that comes to the front. And so in some ways, um, Lon Suter does play that part of of human as opposed to Vulcan responses to things, even though, as you say, he's a Betazoid. I think he makes that clear. I'm wondering whether or not he didn't want to understand um, or that the understanding was beyond um, where he wanted to be because of this Vulcan psyche that we've talked about before. I mean, uh, I mean, the reality is what we hear of the Vulcan culture and history is that they're all psychopathic serial killers who have worked out how to actually bring their their most violent tendencies under control, um, and it's a it's a fascinating thing that that sometimes when when we come face to face with something that we're trying to suppress or or push away, that we we actually um, rec- recoil from that. And I, I think that that uh, Tuvok is really recoiling from something that's at the heart of his own culture, as he looks at Lon Suter. I think Suter himself makes it clear that he's not operating as a normal um, Betazoid because he says at one point in his conversation, I know Betazoids are meant to be empaths and feel others' emotions. He said, I can't even feel my own. I think he's really being set up as a human psychopath. 
Yeah, I mean, just in relation to your your comment about Vulcans, Will, I I was also struck by the fact that you know not only do they suppress the the uh, violent emotions, but as we discover in the little uh, back and forth with Neelix, they also suppress you know their desire to run around naked having fun at festivals. You know, so they they've lost as much as they've gained. I think. I think so. Covered in fat, running around naked. Now, who would not want to carry on that tradition? Well, for the Vulcans, and I think even for the human beings, um, you know, there's a sense in which it's a package deal, like um, unable to control the the negative emotions. And I know that in a times where, you know, may I, maybe I well, I've been traumatised in my own life where I actually um, struggle to control those negative emotions, I do tend to shut down the positive emotions as well. And everything sort of comes into this very neutral, balanced place. Um, that the Vulcans have actually uh, uh, have had said we can't be trusted with the intense negative emotions, and so therefore the cost of 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 shedding those is also losing the intensity of positive emotions. That's a really interesting psychological uh, point that that I think goes beyond humanity in this case. Fascinatingly, the Betazoids um, that we've seen before. Um, have all been happy-go-lucky, frivolous, almost, you know, crazy people, um, um, sexually charged, ready for anything, happy to to engage in all of life, that, all that life has to offer. So Lon Suter is a very different look at Betazoid psychology um, than we've seen before. Is it a look at Betazoid psychology or is it a look at his own psychology? I'm not sure you can extrapolate Lon Suter to the rest of his uh, species. I'm also not sure, though, that it's fair to kick him out of the Betazoid culture just because he's actually anomalous or not neurotypical. Um, so there's an interesting shift there that 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 kind of we 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 do this sometimes too with um um uh, with with humans who actually are not neurotypical. Is that sometimes we'll we'll slide them out, we'll we'll put them in a in a category of their own, or 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 push them into a new place and. A, I, I kind of um, I think there's a danger in in doing that. Um, possibly, but if you're dealing with a psychopath, and I think he clearly is a psychopath, and he's a very violent and murderous psychopath, uh, putting him into his own box somewhere where he's not going to harm himself or others is not such a bad thing. I would have thought. Mm. I think the box though that Will's talking about is is our categorization box, isn't it? It's you know you're you're not a real Betazoid because you don't you know fit this particular pattern or you're not a, a real uh, human being because you don't fit this pattern. And, and that has been so dangerous in our own history of how we've categorised different groups of people as not not really human, subhuman or, or uh, uh, you know, demonise them in, in some way. And that then allows you to be um, violent against them. And I mean, it would be interesting to know what Lon Suda's history was growing up as someone so different uh, to the rest of his culture and and whether he uh, was actually abused and um, and given a hard time because of who who he was and that might well be uh, you know the source of some of that anger or whatever it is that he's uh, playing out I don't think he has a reason for doing it, though, and that's what he makes clear. That's why I'm labelling him, sorry, I'm going to label him as psychopathic because he says quite clearly that there's he just wants to kill people. He says, I don't have a reason. I, I just have this desire deep within, this urge to do that. And, you know, if they do look at me the wrong way or I think they've looked at me the wrong way, that's good enough. And I've killed people for that. Certainly, I wouldn't be disputing um, the diagnosis that he is a psychopath. Um, certainly, that's the case. Um, as a as a bit of a, I, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole preparing for today, and I I, I looked up um, the filmography for Brad Dourif and uh, discovered that his film debut in nineteen seventy five was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as the character of Billy Bibbit, um, and um, and watching some of the scenes in that, that show where that, that is a box we put people with uh, yeah. um, with these tendencies to protect the rest of society from them, the way in which they were dehumanised, um, the way in which, you know, yes, they need to be protected and to protect society from them. But uh, I, I thought that uh, 
Louise Fletcher, another um, favoured character actor of mine who's in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, who plays Kai Wynn uh, in Deep Space Nine, um, played a, an amazing role in that in demonstrating just how when we come into contact with neurodiverse people, people with different ways of doing things and thinking about things and understanding the world, and especially the most intense version of that, like the psychopath, um, we do tend to... Um, they do tend to become a problem um, rather than a person. Uh, and I think that's at the heart of what Janeway is struggling with here. Um, for her, even locking him in the brig or even locking him in the comfort of his own quarters um, for the whole voyage home is, is, is insufficient for her. She's got a really difficult leadership decision to make here about what to do with this person. Mm, maybe. Yeah, she does. But if you've got someone who just acts on the slightest impulse to murder, you don't really have much of a choice, I think. You really do have to lock them up. He can't be left roaming around because you're never going to know when he's going to decide someone's looked at him the wrong way again. Well, I mean, that's assuming that that, that he can't change and that, that whatever it is that caused him to do what he's done, uh, you know, is something indelible indelible and unchangeable and i mean janeway herself says i would rather rehabilitate him so her her great desire whether it's possible or not is is actually that that lon suter is rehabilitated to the stage where he can be trusted to some level to do some things uh within the voyager society rather than just sitting in his quarters or the brig or anywhere else for 80 years I don't know. I'm not sure that you can rehabilitate a psychopath. And he himself says he's tried everything. It's not that he sat there and said, well, I'm just a murderous psychopath. He's actually said, well, let me go and try different therapies and different ways of dealing with that. And his conversations with Tuvok, it's clear he's tried many, many things to actually get these impulses under control, but they always overwhelm him. So you're left with the question, would Voyager... Uh, in its encapsulated starship fleet world um, with a finite number of crew and resources, be able to actually rehabilitate that. And the other problem is, of course, is you can't rehabilitate psychopaths. I mean, I think, though, that what you're pointing to there, Elizabeth, is actually, for me, the the kernel of hope for Lon Suda, which is that he has tried these things and he does want to be different and he actually, you know, asks... Um, uh, Tuvok, can we repeat this? Uh, you know, can can we continue to do whatever it is that you've done that's given me a measure of of control? And I think if if he was truly a, a psychopath or a sociopath, um, you know, I wonder whether he would have even had that desire to change, or whether he would have in fact said, "No, I'm I'm happy as I am. I don't care whether." you know, it hurts other people or harms other people. I just want to be me. Uh, so I think the fact that he he desires some change, and for me that was actually part of the, the beauty of this episode, was you were never, or I was never quite sure whether that was true or not, whether he really did want to change or whether he was just playing psychological games with Tuvok and, you know, some of the, the way he answers Tuvok back uh, you know, makes you feel like he's just playing this game with Tuvok and and saying different things that make Tuvok think. You know, maybe he's changed, maybe he has is isn't changed. I I really love that. I think the thing for me that that really makes me believe that um that Suter is on a journey for self actualization, trying to work out how to be who he is and how he can be, is that he does actually solve the problem to some degree by joining the Marquis. That that uh, Chakotay's representation of Suter is really interesting in this, in that that Suter realises that in normal society, he's actually a danger to, to others. Um, and so he takes himself out of normal society and joins the Marquis, where he gets the opportunity to engage his impulses, his murderous and violent impulses on a regular basis. Um, to me, that felt like um, the 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 way that uh, the the series Dexter deals with the idea of the dark passenger. Uh, and so Dexter in this series, I don't know if either of you have seen Dexter as a series, yeah. but but Dexter um, recognizes that he cannot 
change his dark impulses and his father teaches him a process by which he can be of use to society by actually making use of the dark passenger. Um, and so I think Lon's suit has done something very similar here by actually joining the Marquis. He's gone, here is a cause, a cause that is noble, a cause that is uh, important. If I join this and lend my my gift, and I'm using inverted commas there, to this cause, then I can be effective in bringing about something to the universe in the same way that Dexter does. I know that's that's dark and twisted and 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 difficult, but but there's a sense in which I guess I mean I love these characters, and I mean I've never I can honestly say I've never killed anybody in my entire life, and I don't have violent impulses, but there is something to me that's fascinating about the the hopeful hopelessness of the one who walks with the dark passenger. I don't. I'm not. I'm not convinced, Will. Partly I'm speaking from experience where I have actually known a psychopath um, when I worked at a youth service that probably should stay unnamed. One of our young people was a psychopath and he would go through periods where he would want to not be like he was. So I don't think that's atypical or abnormal to someone who's born a psychopath. But it never lasted and when he broke it, the violence was always up. The ante was upped yeah. often if there'd been a long period where he tried to keep a lid on it. And he did some absolutely dreadful things. Now, this guy was quite charismatic. He was quite charming. You could have a conversation with him. Um, he got on fairly well with his youth worker. And he met this girl. He decided he was in love as much as a psychopath can be in love with anyone. And, um, you know, he really decided he was going to reform. But then one night he just lost it and he beat her so badly that it, she actually had his boot marks actually, you know, like engraved into her back. Yep. Um, you know, I, and I'm not disputing that at all. And I've had similar experiences with psychopaths. And mm -hmm. I guess we're, we're at the really sharp pointy end of redemption. Um, we're asking the question about how the irredeemable can actually achieve anything that might even be slightly like redemption. Um, and, and it's, it's, it is, it's a hard, I'm not saying it's an easy question. It's a really, really difficult question. And uh, I think Janeway, has has got her work cut out for her here. I think so. And and I guess for me, um, part of it is that uh, I I hear what you're saying in terms of framing uh, possible redemption. And without too many spoilers, we'll go on to see more of that with Lonsuda. But um, I I like to frame it in terms of wholeness. And, and actually asking how how does Lon Suda become a whole person? Mm. And I don't think, um, you know, making him just into super soldier who gets to go into whatever war uh, that he deems might be a good one and, and kill a lot of people, I, I don't think that leads to wholeness for the person okay. of Lon Suda. I think somehow there has to be a, a fundamental change to his character. And, and that's why I think there's such hope with what, Tuvok uh, does because he is actually bringing the possibility, at least, of uh, you know a psychological manipulation uh, that might enable him to uh, have a, a better measure of wholeness. I certainly wasn't suggesting it was a good solution, um, but it, it certainly was the closest thing that he had come to to a solution. Um, and and uh, I mean. It, it, it's it's really difficult. But one of the things that I found fascinating just talking about Tuvok and the Tuvok's treatment of Lon Suter is that in some ways um, Tuvok takes a Christ-like position by taking Suter's sin onto himself um, in a really practical way um, and becomes... Uh, he, he, he walks in Suter's shoes. He, he, he actually understands better than he should then then is safe to do so the 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 place that suitor exists um and and there's something for me that's he lays down his life his mental health his 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 sense of sanity um for suitor's salvation um which everybody on the crew including the captain questions whether it was a good idea to do but it was I mean, it was an, an example, I think, of extraordinary love, extraordinarily like a compassionate, unconditional love 
which is a very strange thing to be ascribing to a Vulcan, I would say, yes. Yeah, I agree with you, Will. I think it was a very sacrificial thing that he did, knowing the risk. And I think it did have benefits for Tuvok, uh, for uh, Suta, where it really didn't have a lot of benefits for Tuvok other than he finally understood what it was like to be Lonsuta, I, I guess. And um, he got the answer to his persistent questions about, well, how do you do something without any motivation? But it did come at a huge personal cost to him. I think, um, yeah, I, I, um, I'm not quite as convinced by that, I, and and I think that's because it seems to me that uh, Tuvok's primary motivation is his own personal uh, curiosity or lack of understanding. And while he says there may be a side effect that you might be helped, uh, it, it is really a side effect rather than mm. the, the thing that's really driving him on. But but I mean, if you want to follow that. Um, a little bit. The thing that occurs to me is that um, uh, as a Christ figure, um, Tuvok takes this on, but he doesn't die. And in fact, you know, you might say that in, in some ways it's more like the, the moral influence uh, atonement theory where he demonstrates how he can take this on and be severely tempted and yet at, at the last moment to turn away from evil and to actually um, be able to show the control that's needed to not uh, kill Lon Suda when he goes to, to do that and to recognise that, that it would be vengeance and evil and not justice and right. He does kill was, poor Neelix, though, doesn't he? I mean, <laughs> well, he does in the hologram. I was quite horrified by that hologram, um, yeah, holographic experience where he's there. And had I not read in advance Memory Alpha Found and Summary, which I'm taking to do so I don't get nasty surprises, had I not read in advance that it was a holographic thing that he'd set up, I probably would have died on the spot. It <laughs> just it was, was awful, just so it? awful, awful. Yeah. It, it was awful, and and I didn't remember that it was uh, holographic. But um, mm. I I was kind of half expecting it to be something that was playing in his head as he was having this conversation with Neelix. So I think I think I'm well enough attuned to you know this sort of uh, style of Voyager that I didn't expect uh, in any way that that was going to be real, even though I, I didn't remember the the particular. Uh, um, details of how it was unreal. Well, I hope poor Neelix never finds out about it. Yes, yeah. Well, I think um, we, we've probably talked around the psychopathy of this um, this uh, episode uh, enough. Um, we've spent a bit of time on it. But before we move on, I, I did want to, I guess, do another little biblical refer reference in that, that there's a sense in which um, I, I've I've felt for a while that 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 psychopathy is a bit of a spectrum that in some senses we're all a bit psychopathic. Um, and, um, and I wonder whether or not that's what Paul was trying to, to talk about in Romans seven, when he says, um, what a wretched man am I, I don't do the things I want to do. And I do the things I don't want to do that this sense of wretchedness that, that really um, that uh, Brad Dourif has made a career out of by uh, being in uh, so many movies where this is played out, like One Throw Over the Cookie's Nest, um, playing Mentat Peter DeVere's in Dune, um, being in um, uh, Mississippi Burning as Deputy Clinton Bell, um, playing the voice of Chucky in the horror series Chucky, um, uh, Child's Play, um, that, that he he's actually, that Paul really picks up on this idea that we, we, we have an understanding of how we, we ought to be or how we could be, but within all of us, we've all wanted, well, maybe I shouldn't say we've all, I, I personally have wanted to choke Neelix several times during <laughs> the series. I have but not the, wanted to choke anyone, I'm the, sorry. The difference here is that that that, that I, I, I don't act on that impulse, that I actually, you know, and that my worst moments are when I do act on the impulses of wretchedness that I know that I should be suppressing instead of actually taking, uh, making, making my, who I am. 
Yes, I, I have to say when when Neelix was sort of playing with Tuvok's face, you thought there couldn't be anyone more suited to provoking Tuvok at this moment. You That's know, right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I agree. That, that would tempt a saint. <laughs> yes. Yes, he's very annoying. I think that's true. I'm not sure that I'm entirely happy with the Romans 7 analogy, partly because Romans follows this dichotomy, and it's here in Chapter 7, that flesh is bad and mind is good and spirit is good and body and earthly, fleshly things are bad. I really dislike that dichotomy because I think it sets us up time and time again for failure and to blame our fleshly state and to somehow think if we can just escape into our minds or our souls or our spirit that we'll somehow be better beings. I don't think it works that way. I agree with you wholeheartedly, but I think this episode provides us with a baby in that bathwater because this episode is not about flesh at all. This is entirely uh, a theatre of the mind. Um, and, and and so that wretchedness, I agree with you, um, that Paul gets it wrong in in. Romans by ascribing the the evil to the flesh yeah but, but he's using an analogy and I guess no analogy works all of the time that 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 that, that this internal struggle between good and evil is something that that is part of the the condition of being alive um, and we we wrestle with uh, and I think yeah go on uh, Lindsay I, I was just going to say, uh, I I was following you until you said part of the condition of being alive, because I think actually it wraps back to what we started the episode with, which is it's the human condition. It's not about life. It's about um, whatever is the uniqueness of humanity. And I think if you think about it in evolutionary terms, um, you know, if, if you think about a, a lion or a tiger or whatever, they kill other beings to eat. And and there's no sense of morality in that. They don't then, you know, sit around wondering whether they did the right thing or not. It's it's only with the development of a moral sense in, in humans, early humans, that we had the capacity to actually question, you know, should I kill this, this other person uh, and, and eat them or should I kill them in order to take the food that they've got or whatever it might be. And, and that's... The, the part of the human condition which I think the, the biblical story grabs hold of, that, that once you've got that moral sense, you are then locked into never entirely living up to that, that sense of what you could be. And that that's, I guess, uh, if you want to talk about it, the, the fallenness of humanity. I don't like the word fall because it implies that there was a, a time when we didn't have this. Um, uh, but but it's it's actually the the evolving of humanity to a state where we recognize that we can never live up to our ideals. I think I was trying to avoid human. Um, I was trying to be a citizen of the universe. Um, and so I'll, <laughs> I'll I'll take the correction there and and say it's about the sentient condition. Um, it's about it's about this this um, concept of being sentient because I actually see. When I'm looking at the Star Trek universe, I'm seeing that all of the sentient races are wrestling with this to one degree or another. Um, I guess in terms of the, the word fall, one of the things I'm I'm really trying to wrestle with out of this episode too is that um, is is why would God make psychopaths? Like, why would this be part of the creation? And it's a question I get asked by 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 atheists uh, often. Is is um, that the existence of such beings and mindsets and states um, is is a very strong argument against the existence of a good benevolent God. That's right. And that's one of the eternal problems of theodicy when we have a look at it. And even if you start asking questions about the whole narrative, you know, why does God create a creature that if he's omniscient, knows he's going to do these dreadful things that he then has to wipe them out and punish them for only to let them back to do dreadful things again. I mean, why would an all-knowing God do that? And how could an all-loving God do that? So I think they're really pertinent questions. And, yes, atheists ask those things a lot, and I think fair enough too because there isn't easy answers. I don't think Christians ask those questions enough, um, and I think that's one of the things that we – we, we can be provocative about in this, you know, what is the purpose here? What is the meaning 
here um, in this situation? And is it possible for people like Lon Suter to actually exist with meaning and purpose? Well, he gave himself many and purpose. He joined the marquee so he could kill people. Yeah, yep. And and really, I mean, it's just one particular pointed example of the whole problem of evil in in you know general. I mean, why why does God create pedophiles? Why does God create kleptomaniacs? You know, any of these uh, different outcomes where humans are are, are less than uh, what they would hope or what society hopes for them. Um, you know, gives you that question, and and I mean, the best answer I've ever come up with is that it's it's required. You you can't make sentient beings without um, the possibility that some of them are going to be like this. And you know, I think uh, all, all you can all you can say is, would you rather not exist? Because that's the alternative. Either you know there are no sentient beings, or you have sentient beings that that have that capacity that some of them will be really terrible and and one can only hope that there is some possibility for redemption somehow somewhen somehow somewhere um you know but but I'd rather exist than not exist personally mm, fair point <laughs> um so let's um let's shift away from psychopathy for the moment i think we've spent 30 minutes being uh, very dark um, but I, I guess there's no way to get away from darkness in this episode because no. even the lighting, even the set designing, even everything, the, the whole Voyager takes on a far more sinister tone. The other big topic that's in this one is about violence. Um, and even I, I, I love that, that, that scene, that statement from Lon Suda of such clarity where he, he turns to, 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 to Tuvok and says, even the mind meld is an act of violence. The, the penetrating of the brain, the, the exerting of will and dominance over another. Often when we're, we, we, we're talking about psychopaths, like we've done, we, we, we tend to stick to the violence that's most obvious. Um, but the reality is, you know, we have, uh, uh, when we talk about alpha males, for example, what we're actually saying is that this is a person who has the ability to condition their violence to be able to be a dominant force within the social structure that we live in and can use that violence through emotional manipulation and other forms of management to bend people to their will. And so we, in many ways, in, in Australian society, in Western culture, but in other places as well, we we actually honour that kind of violence um, when a psychopath, a social psychopath, actually uses that to to be in charge of something, even in charge of a country. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I mean, it's interesting, Will, you, you characterised violence quite widely there, and, and I think that that's interesting because it actually then wraps back into this episode where we have, as we've already touched on a, a little bit, Janeway's wrestling with how do I control this person, and she doesn't want to do violence to even Lon Suda mm. by locking him in a tiny little cell for 70 years and and so that it's one of the things that I love about not just Janeway but I guess the federation scene at its best is that it's actually a society whose values are, are turned very much away from violence um and and even the violence of locking someone up uh is seen as uh, something that they don't want to do except at the last extremity and the place of violence in in our society is a really interesting thing. I, I I'll confess, uh, I, I I had a a, a very intense meeting um, on Wednesday evening that meant that I wasn't able to go to my regular session of Zombie Church. And hello to all of the listeners from Zombie Church who uh, who go there. And when I got online, I still had. I don't know, this tension inside me. Um, and, and so I started playing with the dynamite in the game. Um, and unfortunately, I dropped a whole bunch of the dynamite in places around the, the church that we had built and, and destroyed large portions of it. Um, and, and I felt much better for having done that afterwards. Um, the other players didn't feel quite as good about it, I have to admit, but, but that it actually... It released something in me. It allowed me, and I wouldn't consider myself to be a violent person, but there was something about the 
the the the ease in which violence actually allows us to release tension that's very very attractive um and and i i also recognize that i'm speaking from a from a cisgendered white male perspective as well so i want to put it out on flag there but the reality is this exists and if it exists in in me uh, and i would consider myself to be a a fairly nonviolent person then it, it it's it's actually not something we can ignore. It's something that, that is out there. It is out there, and I think it's gendered, so let me state that. Yep, um, I've never found that going around hitting things or blowing up imaginary churches, as it were, um, or, or doing stuff like that has actually made me feel better at all. And often, being female, if you uh, become the target of an alpha male who decides that it's his place to make sure you know he's the boss and he's going to keep you in that that spot and he's going to put you down, you're, you've got very little comeback to that. And you learn to suppress it. And, you know, whacking something doesn't make it any better. It really doesn't. I used to do boxing in the gym and, you know, I used to try and think, well, if I if I hit this and pretend it's someone, it'll, it'll work. But it really never worked for me. And you have to find other ways of actually dealing with this stuff that you end up suppressing. Because if you do let it out, you're seen as unfeminine, you're aggressive, you're pushing yourself forward. Who do you think you are as a woman? So there's a whole gendered concept to this sort of violence that you're describing. And I think it's very delineated in many ways. I think the interesting um, comment you made there, Will, is the release of of something. And and I think, you know, if we look at this episode... That's uh, one of the interesting things about Lon Suter and what he represents is that you don't get the sense that it was a release of some huge tension inside. It was just he liked to do it, and that's kind of the creepy thing. Whereas even Tuvok, when he is, um, you know, sort of taken over by this, uh, you, you have this scene in his room when Captain Janeway walks in where he's destroyed all the furniture and in the process hurt himself. And that much more seems like it's that more usual uh, violence, which is the release of inner anger or tension or whatever, um, rather than the kind of very cold, malevolent violence of, of Lon Suda. I think Suda's gotten used to it, though, um, and that he does actually state in this episode that, that part of the reason why he does this is because it sits, it lives inside him and he he has to mask constantly in order to actually exist in society. And so it, there's a sense in which... I remember, and it's a completely different kind of setup, but when I was living overseas and I had to speak in, in language that wasn't my heart language all the time, that there was a sense of relief, uh, of relaxation, when I could suddenly actually have a conversation in the language of my heart. And uh, what what I think Suter is saying and what I hear from, from the character of Dexter as well um, is, that, is that violence is a big part of the language of... of, of of their heart. Um, and so there's this, even if it's only momentary, there is this momentary sense of, ah, you know, that I, I've, I've actually escaped from um, having to, to, to hide myself, to mask myself all the time. Um, yeah. It's, it's a, it's, it's a fascinating um, thing. So I, 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 I guess, even though it may be greatly diminished and maybe it's like a drug um, that the more you have, the more you need, um, that, that I think Suda still does express that he gains a sense of relief um, from enacting violence in this way. So I think then that, you know, what Elizabeth puts before us is the question, are there other and better ways to deal with that inner turmoil, whatever it is, than releasing it through some kind of violence, even if it's channeled uh, violence or, or virtual violence? Is there a way to deal with the turmoil uh, that, that is non-violent? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. And it depends on the situation because there are some situations I think you can deal with it and there are um, therapies or ways of mediating that are quite effective, but it depends on the source of the violence and 
you know, if you're dealing with a psychopath, it's obviously going to be different who's with someone who's just lost their temper in a big way. And that's a, a more momentary thing that has done harm at that time. So I think there's ways it can be dealt with. But as a society, we're not very willing to look at them in many ways because our whole culture and society is built on violence. Yep. And that's part of the problem. And if you look at domestic violence, where governments will tell you a lot's being done, there's nowhere near enough being done. And we still have all these women dying at, on a regular basis. And I would suggest that Annabelle Crabb's right. If that many men died of shark attacks a week, they'd drain the ocean. Mm. Yep. I, I think uh, another interesting aspect of this uh, episode is the the sort of the, the Vulcan uh, exploration and that exploration of you know Tuvok losing his um, constraints and then regaining them and and I I was having an interesting uh, think about this because I think I always it, it's very hard for me to get outside the anthropocentric uh, frame and and to think of Tuvok the Vulcan as something other than a repressed human being. Um, and, and, and I mean, clearly he is repressing things. And as we said earlier, perhaps both positive and negative emotions. Um, and, and for humans, that would almost always be a bad idea. And it's bad because it doesn't work, because the repression never, uh, you know, is lifelong. The repression always leads to a, an outbreak. Uh, it's not actually dealing with, with the thing. It's just pushing it down until it explodes. Um, and, and maybe part of the difference with Vulcans is that it does work, that actually, except for extraordinary circumstances like this one, that, that the repression is able to uh, be a sustainable and stable place for them to build a whole life on, whereas I think in human beings psychologically that's just not the case. Repression just doesn't, doesn't work except in the short term. I think I'd agree with you with that, Lindsay. I mean, in my brief watchings of Star Trek, I can't remember a Vulcan who ever lost it um, in big ways on any regular basis. So I, I just accepted what Tuvok says, that after centuries of, of, of evolving this kind of way of being, that is their way of being, and it works for them, and they seem quite happy with it. I think um, Spock lost it on a regular basis, but maybe that was because he was half human trying to deal with that. But but certainly quite a number of the Vulcan-focused episodes are actually focused around when they can't keep it under control rather than when they can. Um, and um, so that's a fascinating thing is that, that the norm here that we're educated in the Star Trek universe is that that that. 99% of Vulcans, 99% of the time, have this mastered this ability to keep their emotions under control. But the interesting stories about Vulcans are about when they lose it. Well, it's uh, certainly interesting to human beings anyway. That's <laughs> yes, right. That's right. I mean, deviance watching, is always so. more interesting if you want a plot, isn't it? You know, yeah. if everyone's doing the same thing, it's not very interesting. Where do you get the, the tension from? Wouldn't it be fascinating to watch uh, a, a, um, a reactions video of Vulcans watching episodes of Star Trek? That would be... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't like the way we've been characterised in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes. They're probably asking the question, why do the humans hang out with all the weird Vulcans who lose it? And <laughs> <laughs> may well be. Or maybe it takes some sort of personality Vulcan tray to actually enter Starfleet. Who knows? So maybe. I have a question for my esteemed colleagues here. Um, in, in the uh, scene uh, where Tuvox lost his, um, his re restrictions and he's talking to the captain and, and he has a go at her and says she's weak and all that sort of stuff, then later when Tuvox regained his, his mental equilibrium and, and he, he apologises and he says, you know, I've always had the greatest respect for you, is his comment about thinking that she's weak actually a truth that has been suppressed uh, or, or is it a made-up thing or a, a thing created out of anger that, that's not actually what he thinks truthfully? That's a really good question, and I thought a lot about this, Lindsay, because it's, um, yeah, is he, does he really think that way and suppressing it? That didn't 
in the end, I decided that didn't sit right with me. And I thought he was doing like what humans do when they're drunk. They say stuff because they're mad or they're out of control or they're angry that they don't really mean. They might kind of mean it, but when they're sober and they're with that person that they see as a friend, they don't think like that and they wouldn't say those things. So I guess I I saw it in that way. But those things can still be true. Um, And so I would give you a a very Vorlon yes answer to your question because there's this sense in which um the answer is yes to both questions that 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 the, the that when i read in multiple points of of um of the new testament there there are places where it says in my weakness um god is strong um in god's um wis- god's wisdom seems foolish to people so so these these evaluations of weak strong wise um, they're actually subjective. That that um, that many might suggest um, from an alpha perspective that for Christ to allow Himself to be arrested, uh, mocked, spat on, killed, crucified, um, you know, was was weak to do that. And yet, it's the strongest from from my perspective point of 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 what love is all all about. And so, so I actually think that 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 both statements that he makes are actually true. Um, that in his place where violence is everything and strength is all about power over, he he does see the captain as weak. And in his place of, of control and rationalization, that he does hold the captain in highest respect. And so so they're both true. I wrestled more with the disgust remark he makes. Not so much he may see her as weak at times. I would agree with you, Will. But when he says, you disgust me, I thought that was just spoken to damage in that moment rather than that's something that he would normally feel. But I think he felt it so earnestly and so completely when he was delivering that statement. Maybe, or he maybe just wanted to wound her at that time. And I do differentiate between I actually feel disgust and I want to wound you, so how can I best do it? Yeah, yep. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you're just, uh, you know, psychologically manipulating someone by saying the words that you know will hurt them. But I yes. think I think Will's also correct that, that often there is a kernel of truth and sometimes we know that the thing that will wound someone someone is the thing that has at least a kernel of truth that they will hang on to that they they will actually grab hold of that disgust or whatever it is because there's something in them that also feels that you know i mean yep. that that's that's the worst sort of um uh, of uh, people who who psychologically manipulate uh, you know, partners or whatever is that they use mm. the things that they know the partner kind of feels um, their weaknesses uh, and they exacerbate that and turn the screws. Well, that's like gaslighting. I don't think Tuvox gaslighting. No, I don't think so. I think he's just really pissed off basically and he's and- just saying those things because he is and he wants to wound her. And I guess I can only speak from personal experience. I've been very personal today. People are going to think I'm a psychopath. But <laughs> when, when I'm angry, when I'm hurt, and and the person who has hurt me um, or made me angry wants to come and make up too quickly, I recoil. Like I, it, 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 it does make me disgusted that I don't particularly want to to embrace, you know, that that I, I need some more time to actually work through how I'm feeling before I want to be pushed into a position of working out whether or not I, I want to reconcile or what's happening. And 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 so there is this sense in which, you know, in that moment that's how how he feels. Um and and and, and I can I can recognize that I, I felt that way myself. Um I also wanted to push into the area of violence a bit further um, and take us to Tom Paris because Tom Paris has an interesting arc in this and I actually think it also talks about violence because he is actually making use of power to take what doesn't belong to him from unwitting individuals. And so this is an act of violence. It's not recognisable in many ways amongst all of the other acts of violence, but in itself it's right there in the middle of this where he is actually um, being abusive 
um, that he's he's being deceptive and he's actually enacting a form of violence in order to make that occur and happen. He's gaslighting. You want your example of gaslighting? It's Tom Paris in this episode. I, yeah. I just found that whole, uh, you know, totally unbelievable, to be honest, because, I yep. mean, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't a heavily manipulated sort of gambling situation where uh, a Starfleet officer could be tricked into thinking the, the odds were in their favour. I mean, it was, it was blatantly obvious that, you know, if, if you're guessing a number out of the thousands, uh, you're not going to get it. And if the, the house is skimming a couple of percent off the top, uh, you know, each time, then the house is the only one that's going to win. I, I, I have no idea why any of them thought it was worthwhile other than that they knew they were going to lose and they were just doing it for the fun, in which case, you know, who's who's hurt? So um, obviously you haven't been down to the local club and looked at the poker machines for a no, while. No, that's right. <laughs> Look, I'm with Will on that one. <laughs> I, I mean, I agree with you, but I think the thing about poker machines is that they're very well designed to disguise how bad a, a, an option they are. And I, I had a friend, a, a, a fellow pastor, who actually had before that been a poker machine mechanic. And and they have the capacity to change the payout on those machines, um, you know, to the, the nth degree so that they can pay out exactly enough to keep people hooked. So, I mean, that's a, a really well-disguised psychological manipulation. Mm. Tom Paris's wasn't. Um, and and the fact that a bunch of Starfleet officers, you know, wanted to go into that, to me, says they knew that it was a losing prospect. They were just having fun. I get that, but I don't want that to distract us from the idea that that's about violence, um, that the poker machines are a system of violence on our society, that that as as poorly scripted as Tom Paris's um, racket was, that, that 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 in this episode what we've got here is is that we forget that this is the case and so so we almost find ourselves in that beatitude moment where it says you know I I hear you say um you know uh, uh, um, uh, don't murder but if you look with anger then you have murdered um, is what Jesus says in the beatitudes um, uh, if you look lustfully then you have raped um, you know like there's this sense in which um, um, Jesus really pushes the boundaries on violence and actually says, hey, violence is actually begins um, a long time before someone gets struck. Um, and that's another thing I think this episode does for us is that the, the closest thing to an act of violence we come to in this episode is seeing what Tuvok has done to his quarters or when he starts to bang against the, 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 um, the, the force, force field. field. Yep. Yeah. But apart from that, this episode, which is tense with violence all the way through it, actually doesn't show any violence at all, and yet, yet feels like it's it's drenched in it. Um, that that the moment you actually strike, the violence is almost over. Like it does show violence to Neelix. Yes, I'm going yes, to correct you, Will. That that scene with Neelix was quite violent. That's true. Yes. Yep. Yep. I'll 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 take that. But but I guess the the sense that I'm I'm trying to get to is that that we think that striking is violence, um, but it actually starts a long time before that. Yes, it does. And if we look at domestic violence, it's not just striking; it's no. psychological violence, it's manipulation, it's gaslighting, it's control of someone's life, of their money, of what they do, who they see. It's looking at their phone to see what they've done on social media. It's it's controlling every aspect of their life in terms of what you wear. There's all sorts of violence. I think you're right, um, that goes on in a family violence situation and it's hitting can be the least of it. That's right. And usually the physical violence that actually occurs, whether it's domestic or in other ways, occurs when the person who is the victim of that violence resists. So yep. it's it's actually um, uh, when, a, when, the, when the person who is actually being receiving the violence decides that they're going to be going to be strong that they're going to stand up is when the violence escalates to the point of 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 physical violence but most of the time the violence is actually not physical and and in our society we we dismiss that um we we dismiss leaders who 
We have an entire system in Australia where our leaders get into a room during question time and are violent to each other for an they hour are. every day. Um, and we we salute that. We we, we no, we don't. That. We, we do as a society. We actually applaud that. We we wouldn't have it if we didn't. I know I don't, I don't. agree. I know you don't. But but it's why does it exist? Because I think it exists as theatre, if you want my honest opinion. Question time has become about theatre. The questions are all set up. The answers are all set up. The media is there. It's a stage and it plays out in this very adversarial way because our parliamentarians seem to think that being adversarial is what the Australian population wants to see. I have never met a single person ever who has said they enjoy watching Question Time. No, I think and, lots of polls show that actually normal Australians think that it's is disgusting, and you know yes. why do they act like that? But uh, just just coming back to your your broader point, Will, which is a, an interesting one. I, I I still think the Paris thing was really poorly done. If it was actually yes. trying to uh, be a, another thread in a portrayal of violence, they they could have done a lot better. But if you think that this episode is an episode themed around violence, then my interesting question would be, what do you think the message of the episode is? What, what do you think it's trying to tell us about uh, violence and the way it uh, is or isn't um, shown? Nothing good. <laughs> I, I disagree. I, I think what it's doing is, is that, that, that in many ways violence is like one of those icebergs. Um, you know, there's a tip of the iceberg, and we think that as long as we're we're not doing the things we can see that we might label as violence, that we're actually okay people. But there is a lot under the water, and I think what this episode does is it allows us to to have a conversation like this, to bring this stuff to the surface, and actually say, what does this look like? Um, because um, I actually think that that especially for men. Um, in in Australian society and Western society at this time, um, many men are actually in denial about the level of violence they exercise on a day to day basis, um, because much of it is under the water, um, and and we don't actually have to face it. I think this is a mirror. Um, I think that this this episode provides us with a mirror that allows us to say, what are, what am I going to do about my violence? Um, so that's what I think the message of this episode is. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I agree that it's a message of the episode. I think it's a message which uh, we can take out of it and, and that might be a really apposite uh, message so, for today. So what's your message from the episode, um, Lindsay? What did you get from it? Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I, I mean, that's an interesting one and, and, and I... I'm still, you know, like you, I'm I'm a bit taken by the whole uh, Lon Suter and the way Brad Dourif plays him, and and for me, that there's it, it reminds me of a um, uh, was it uh, M. Scott Peck wrote a, a book called uh, The Beat of a Different Drum, where he yep. actually talks about um, evil in people and and some people that he as a psychologist has come across. Uh, that their evil seems incomprehensible. It it doesn't seem to have the the normal human sense of you know well I do this thing and I know it's wrong but I do it to get the thing or to gratify my urge or whatever. It mm. it just seems something uh, even darker. And and for me, the episode is exploring that kind of darkness. Um, and and I think it actually leaves us with a question mark rather than a statement. It leaves us yep. with a, a wondering of, of what is this about and how can it be? And, uh, you know, how, how do we deal with those big um, questions of theodicy in a sense? How, how do we yeah. deal with a world where that kind of unexplainable evil uh, can happen? Yeah, I think I agree more with Lindsay than you will. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I mean, I like your idea that we can take that out of the episode, that we can use it as a mirror and think about what our own violence is and how we actually manage that and what forms it might take. But um, in terms of what I got out of the episode, I think I'm closer to what Lindsay said um, in looking at it. I think that's also why for me it's really important that this is not the end for Lon Suda, that that um, that we get to to follow this story 
uh, through um, and that we we do find I think um, a sense of reconciliation, a sense of conclusion, and even a sense of closure. I think with the Suda character uh, going forward, to the point where, uh, even though he doesn't um, last many seasons, that he's still referenced in season five in the episode Counterpoint um, mm. when they are actually remembering him, and that's actually three years later in Voyager's journey that he is he's still remembered um, for this for this episode that we've seen, but also for what is to come. Um, and, and so that I find that that heartening and hopeful. Um, I also think that there's a sense in which um, uh, this, this, an episode like this actually uh, allows us um, to, to find our, our, ourselves. Like, I, I don't think we like looking at this um, and we would prefer not to. Um, so being able to actually, um, to, to, to say, I'm going to look at something that I would rather turn my head away from. Interestingly enough, all of us agreed that this was a good episode mm. and that it was engaging. Yep. It mm. was interesting yep. and maybe even entertaining. Um, no, so not entertaining. Something don't, fascinating don't about push that. it. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it's right. And I mean, I think just on what you were saying there, Will, you know, that, that arc of Lon Suter, I, I will be really interested uh, both to watch that again and then to talk uh, with uh, you both about it again. And, and I think for me, the thing that's niggling in the back of my head is, you know, a discussion around uh, the myth of redemptive violence, because I think, uh, you know, that's a, a really fruitful uh, area for us to um, to unpick, perhaps in an episode to come. Well, I'll be looking forward to the fact that they've followed on from anything because <laughs> one of the things that has really disappointed me is that lack of follow-on and last week's awful catfish episode. <laughs> but at the end of it, you have Tom Paris in this deep self-reflective state about who he is and what he doesn't have to prove or what he does have to prove and what he needs to think about to be a better human being. It's all down the okay. toilet in this episode as okay. we see this arrogant superficial prat running to, his blooming game i have to let you both off the hook now because um there's something that i know um because i've watched ahead that you don't remember and that is that uh, this exchange between chakotay and tom paris is actually a complete setup for something else that they're trying to do and so it's not the bad writing it's actually bad pantomime um in character that that um that that Tom Paris is actually now um, about to do something for the crew um, that will help them. But in order to do that, he has to fall out of favor with the leadership team. Um, and so th there's, you'll see it unfold, but I think it's important just to mark at this point to say that there is a scripted reason for Tom Paris's behavior in this episode. Um, um, not good enough, Will. It's just not contiguous with where Tom <laughs> Paris was at the end of last week's episode. He, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, looking at it, he has learnt nothing from being a catfish and going through the whole process and, and having that self-reflective stuff at the end. It's like it never happened, and that really bothered me. Yep. We'll come back to this point in a couple of episodes' time when this will make a bit more sense, I think. I think, though, that what, what you're pointing to, and we talked about this, I think, at the very start of uh, our podcast, is that we are looking at episodic TV. This, this is TV yeah. of a certain style. And, and it doesn't mean that there isn't character development, but they're much more focused on the episode than they are on those larger arcs. And so the way the episodes get put together... Um, you know, you have to look at it almost statistically and say, okay, over three seasons, do we see a change in Tom Paris rather than do we see a change from this episode to the next episode? Because the, the way they uh, put together the building blocks of episodes doesn't always serve that larger arc, but over time it, it sort of develops. Whereas I think more modern TV is much more aware of, of playing the arc from one episode to the other yeah i think you're probably right Lindsay, and and will but you know i just felt i'm falling back into my former dislike of tom paris i'm quite <laughs> comfortable with that he's being unpleasant if he can redeem himself well and good but you know 
That's well, where I am. At least he programmed a holographic woman to actually warn people about his behaviour. <laughs> um, I, I think too, yeah, like when we compare these 90s episodes um, with, say, Discovery and Picard as they are today, that we're seeing that, that, that the episodic nature of the sci-fi of the 90s um, has has gone completely, and and I'd actually suggest that we've gone too far the other way. That I find yeah. some of these ongoing narratives exhausting. Yes, like I I kind of go, can't Michael Burnham just have a holiday? Like you know, can't we, can't we just? Um, Amanda and I have been watching um, The Walking Dead, and we're kind of going, these people can't catch a break. Like they just need a moment to to breathe for a second. Um, and uh, I was talking, we were talking about that the other day, and I was going, but that might be a really boring episode where they just uh, grow crops and uh, hang out and play chess, you know, like, because um, you, you'd spend the entire episode going, okay, when's the bad thing going to happen? What's going to happen next? <laughs> yep. Um, but but it doesn't have to be an episode where they just spend their time growing crops and whatever. It, it has... It, I think the thing about this kind of TV, and I agree with you, I like I like it in some aspects, is that it raises the tension and then it defeats that tension in this episode. So it's not just another That's step correct. along the 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 thing that won't climax until the very end of the season or maybe even the end of the show. Um, you actually get the raised tension and then you get the the completion in this episode and you, you have that sense of, oh, we dealt with it, that's good. Yeah, yep. I think it is following that formula. And the new formula is that we'll raise a tension and we'll raise another tension before we've dealt with the last tension and we'll add another tension in while this one's half completed and then the completion of this tension will actually create three more tensions and and. In some ways, it's more realistic. That's what my life is is like. Sometimes. <laughs> oh dear! But but I I also enjoy the opportunity of the hopefulness of a group of people who actually have a problem, work out how to solve it, and then the credits roll. Yeah. Um. I'd like a little more of that in my life. Wouldn't it be nice to roll the credits on COVID? Yeah. Yes, it would. I'd be very happy <laughs> to roll the credits on COVID. You know, when you see the damage it's doing. In so many ways. And and I think that's why, you know, if we look at uh, stuff that's going on in the zeitgeist, you have things like, um, you know, the show uh, Ted Lasso, um, you know, taking off out of nowhere and everyone who watches it loves it. And the reason is because it's actually providing some of that sense of, of hope and, and of goodness and whatever in a time when we feel like our real lives are, are overburdened with, with tension and problems and pain. Yeah. Mm. Yep. There's nothing like a good escapist fantasy. <laughs> well, like all good Star Trek episodes, uh, this one has come to an end. Um, unfortunately, we haven't been able to come up with any great solutions to the problems <laughs> of violence or psychopathy or how we deal with those things. So the tension from this episode for us continues. Um, it's been a, 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 a difficult episode and a, and a darker episode, both in terms of Star Trek and also for us. Uh, and if this episode has triggered anything for you, then uh, I, I will be putting some links into the show notes that allow you to um, to, to seek some help um, and to uh, to get some support um, so that uh, you you're not alone. Um, I, uh, I I don't think I've got anything else to say today. Uh, I've been Will Nicholas. I'm Lindsay Cullen. I'm Elizabeth Rain. And this has been Voyager: A Theological Journey. Captain's Log Supplemental. Ensign Souter has been incarcerated in secured quarters, where he will likely spend the rest of our journey home. 